Hello and welcome to Renewing Hope Church in Oceanside, California, where our mission is to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourself. We pray that this episode will both challenge and encourage you to love more. And now, here's today's episode. I heard a uh, quote recently, walking into an unknown uh, future with an all-knowing God. It's like, oh, that's solid. Um, well, welcome. So glad to be with you tonight. We are continuing on. This is our last session. Uh, we've been going through the prophecies of Daniel um, and building some foundation for, for the future, you know, talking about the end times. And uh, this is kind of our finale. And so I always like to start uh, with a recap. And as each Sunday night comes along, the recap gets a little longer, but we've got some new folks tonight. So I think it's important to kind of review. So We established in our first session that the proper interpretation of eschatology uh, is a futurist premillennial position. What does that mean? It means that when it comes to the testimony of the prophets in the Old Testament and and in the New Testament with Jesus and Apostle Paul and Peter and the Apostle John, it's best to look at these texts in a literal sense. So when Revelation 20 speaks of a thousand-year reign of Jesus on this earth— We see that as a literal event, that he's going to literally reign for a thousand years. Uh, The, you know, events building up to that event, the seven-year tribulation period, the halfway mark starting the great tribulation when the Antichrist is revealed, we see these as literal events. So we will have a a literal antichristic figure that emerges out of the Middle East uh, who will be very powerful in um, political and religious uh, clout. So we see these things as literal. We also went over the opposing positions as a means for you to be comfortable, at least start to scratch the surface with some other brothers and sisters that share a different belief system. So we looked at amillennialism, which basically does not see the events of eschatology in a literal form, but more symbolic. They believe that we are in the millennium now. So no thousand year uh, reign of Jesus on this earth. We also looked at preterism, which seeks to explain the testimony of the prophets in a historical sense. So when the second temple was destroyed in 70 AD, God had essentially permanently turned his face from the nation of Israel and essentially divorced himself from the nation of Israel on a a corporate level, if you would. And we see this as an error. Um, We looked at the importance of the Abrahamic covenant. Because God still has an unfulfilled promise to the nation of Israel. Therefore, he cannot divorce himself from them or he's a liar. And God is not a liar. God promised the nation of Israel, the ancient Hebrew people, um, a specific piece of land that was not designated to the church. It was to Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, and their seed. And Israel has never occupied that land ever. And so when we read through the prophets and we see the same story told over and over again in uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel about this regathering of the people that have been scattered back to Israel, it makes sense because God hasn't fulfilled his promise to them yet. All right. And then we started diving into Daniel. We looked at Daniel chapter two and Nebuchadnezzar's dream that we found pertained to the future. And we evaluated that statue. Uh, We found that the head of gold represented the Babylonian. These are historic empires, the Babylonian empire. 
uh, the chest and the arms of silver, the Medo-Persian Empire, the belly and the thighs of bronze as the Greek Empire. And then we looked at the legs of iron. And we said, well, the historical view has held that this is a, the Roman Empire, the historical Roman Empire. And we said, well, does the Bible you know, actually describe the Roman Empire? And when you scratch the surface, it doesn't. You look at Daniel 2.40. This, this legs of iron had to crush and devour all of the previous empires. Well, the Roman Empire only crushed one-third of the previous lands. You know, and they didn't crush religiously or linguistically or culturally. So he said, you know, is there a better suitor for what uh, Daniel is describing in, in 240? And there is, and it's the Islamic Caliphate. Um, if you're not familiar with the Islamic Caliphate or the Islamic Empire, um, the Islamic Empire lasted from 632 AD to 1923. It was culminated into the Ottoman Empire. And it devoured all of the previous empires, the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greek, all of those lands. It conquered religiously. We see the, the spread of Islam through the Middle Eastern nations. Uh, linguistically, we saw Arabic uh, you know, go all through those lands. So it is a far better suitor for what Daniel described in 240. And we've broken from that tradition. Not just us. This is a, a view that has become very well respected in the last 20 years. Um, so we need to be careful and appreciative of all the exposition that's happened throughout history in terms of you know, Bible interpreters and what they've said and not be disrespectful, but say, hey, this isn't really adding up. Um, we saw the feet of iron and clay in Daniel 2 as a revived version of this, this uh, you know, in our view, this Islamic empire in the days to come. So that was, that was kind of our, our foundation, Daniel 2. Then we moved to Daniel 7, and we saw basically a recapitulation of Daniel 2, just telling a more in-depth story. And we saw the beast, the, the lion, the bear, the leopard, representing the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, and the Greek empires. And then the fourth beast, also lining up with a devouring, crushing entity that describes the Islamic Caliphate, not the Roman Empire. Then in Daniel 7, we were introduced to ten horns, which kind of coincide with the ten toes of Daniel chapter 2. And we were introduced to the little horn in Daniel 7, which represents the Antichrist. So Daniel 2, Daniel 7, they're very similar. They're building on each other. Again, this revived version of a last day's empire culminating into a ten-nation coalition coming against the nation of Israel in the last days where the Lord Jesus is going to come and uh, bring wrath and judgment on those nations. Um, we got into Daniel 8, and we looked at the person of the Antichrist. We evaluated from a hermeneutical perspective, meaning we pulled from many different texts to say, well, where is this figure going to emerge from? And we found that through Daniel 8 and other texts that it's best, um, he's best described as emerging from the Middle East, not from Europe. And we have very strong evidence in Daniel 8, the story of the ram and the goat. Um, last week, we got into Daniel chapter 9, and we saw this incredible prayer of, of Daniel just coming before the Lord. And he was so attuned to his generation and what was going on prophetically. He, at the very beginning of Daniel 9, it says that, that Daniel was having the understanding of what God told Jeremiah in the set that the 70-year captivity was coming to an end. And we said, what a model he had. He had so much fear and reverence of the Lord. He was so in tune with his generation. And that's the same attitude that we should have. The way that Daniel approached the 70-year captivity, we should be approaching the 70th week 
or this final seven years, whether that's in our generation or generations to come. Uh, and then we looked at the 70-week prophecy. Um, absolutely amazing. We saw that the first 69 weeks, which again, we don't do too much math again, but um, 70 weeks represents 70 cycles of seven years. So a total of 490 biblical years. And we looked at, it's just breathtaking, that from the time that the decree went out in Nehemiah chapter two to rebuild the temple in the city of Jerusalem to the coming of Messiah when he was revealed just before his crucifixion, that prophecy was um, hit exactly on the day. It's, it's absolutely amazing where people have said, Daniel couldn't have written this book because it's too accurate. Um, and then we were left with, okay, well, what about the 70th week? And that's where we're at in time now. We anticipate this final seven years prior to the Lord Jesus's return. Um, we found that there's going to be some sort of covenant to get this thing started, the seven-year period. And halfway through that, the Antichrist is going to break that covenant. He's going to stop sacrifices, set himself up as God in the temple, and kickstart this great tribulation, the second half of the seven years. And I left us last week saying, well, we've got an elephant in the room, you know. Is the church going to be around for all of this? You know? So that brings us to tonight. We're going to talk about uh, the rapture and what the Bible teaches us about this event. So let me pray. Um, Father, I thank you so much just for the opportunity to meet, to worship. Holy Spirit, I would just ask that you would teach us tonight. I thank you for um, your word. Lord, help us to be like the Bereans, God, and just consider your scriptures daily um, that they may uh, just encourage us as we grow in our our knowledge and understanding of your word, we would grow in our love. Um, so we give you tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, it was about 10 years ago, I was driving around San Diego, and there had been some fires. And it was all, I, I went out to get groceries or something. My wife and I were living um, down in a back house, down in Rancho Santa Fe. It was a nice place to get our marriage started. Um, little cottage, and we had our first son. And I remember going out, and it was just eerie. There was ashes all in the sky. And, uh, you know, the, the grocery stores were running on generators. And I just remember thinking, this is bizarre. And for whatever reason, in that moment, I thought back to the Left Behind series. And I was, like, thinking about this idea of the rapture. And I, I literally thought to myself, is that, would that really happen? Like, everybody just disappears, you know, like a third of the earth or whatever the number. And it was the first time in my life that I had actually stopped and said, you know, I've always been taught this just based on books and movies and, you know, various doctrine, but I'd never really like dug in to see if it was actually true. And um, 10 years ago, that kind of started my, my journey into eschatology. And in the last five years, kind of a um, really, you know, diving in. But, um, you know, so I want to talk about these, these various positions briefly. Um, so this idea of rapture, again, it comes from the Greek word harpazo, which basically means to be caught up, snatched away, or taken away. So that's what it, it literally means. And so as it, re, it relates to sort of this end time harpazo event where we get you know, raptured away, what are we raptured away from? God's wrath. Okay, so many believe that God's wrath, specifically as it relates, relates to the eschaton or the end of the age, is specific to the day of the Lord, when Jesus returns, right, and he comes to judge the wicked. Um, but so what we're going to do is actually evaluate, well, if we're getting raptured from his wrath, well, when does the wrath actually start? 
okay? And it's important to look at this and see what the Bible says about these things. Um, So we have the pre-tribulation rapture, which basically that uh, doctrine teaches that the church is raptured on day one. So when the seven-year period starts, the church is out of here, right? Basically, that position holds that the wrath then must start on day one. Because if we're being raptured away from wrath, it's, that's when it starts. So that's the pre-tribulation rapture. I'll talk about that in a moment. The mid-tribulation rapture states that at the halfway mark, when the Antichrist is revealed, the church will be raptured away at that point. We'll have a look at 2 Thessalonians, which is a strong um, you know, scripture to support that view. And then we have this pre-wrath uh, view, which basically states that sometime after the midpoint of the tribulation, but before the Lord Jesus returns at Armageddon. And then the final position is a post-tribulation rapture, which they do not see the rapture and the return of Jesus as um, independent happenings. They're simultaneous. So when Jesus returns, the church is raptured at the same time. Okay. So pre-tribulation rapture. Um, it, it was basically came from a guy named John Darby. Um, sometime around the mid-1800s. So it's, a, it's basically 170 years old, this doctrine. You're not going to find it taught in church history prior to 1850. Okay, and the story goes that John Darby, he was an Irish preacher. He was part of the Plymouth Brethren movement. And he basically was in this accident of some sort. And he's reading his Bible. And all of a sudden, the story goes, Scripture jumped out at him. And he came up with this pre-tribulation idea. Okay. And, um, so that's where it was birthed. There's not a single scripture that actually says that the church will be raptured on day one. I'm going to say that again. There's not one single verse in the Bible that says that the wrath starts on day one and the church is raptured out of here. Okay. It's inferred through things like, um, we will avoid the hour of testing or we will avoid God's wrath. Right Or Matthew 24, it's not talking about the church being raptured. It's talking about uh, unsaved Jewish people at that time. So there's all these constructs that are built to sort of support this position. But again, there's not one verse specifically that states that the church is to be harpazoed out on day one of this seven-year period. Um, so that's important because if you're going to break from tradition, like we've taught, right? And, you know, we've, we've shared that our belief, we don't believe in, for example, Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, that this last day's empire is a revived uh, Roman empire, but a revived Islamic empire. So if we're going to break from tradition, you know, we want to be respectful, but it's got to be supported by the Bible. And so Darby broke from tradition, again, never taught, and it's just not supported in Scripture. I can't find a single verse. Um, So then, are there verses that talk about this Harpazo event in relation to the coming of the Lord Jesus? And there are. So the first text we're going to look at is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So if you got your app or you got your Bible, let's let's turn there. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is telling the church at Thessalonica that Hey, you guys are doing great. You've received the word. You're, um, we are encouraged by your actions and, and what you're doing. And then at the end of it, he says in verse, uh, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, he says, um, And so to you, to wait for his son, Jesus, from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, 
even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So he kind of plants this seed about Jesus delivering us from the wrath, but there's no reference to the coming of the Lord in, this, in that particular text. So we just heard, okay, we're going to be delivered from wrath. But when does it actually happen? And then he does a follow-up in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4 here. So verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, who have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the what? The coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who, have, who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be what? Caught up. This is that very strong use of harpazo in the Greek. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So here we have a reference to harpazo that has to do with being gathered to the Lord. Okay? Um, This is interesting. and It points very strongly to the rapture. And the coming, the return of Jesus at Armageddon, when he comes on the horse with crowns and fiery eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth and bloody robe, bloody clothes, he's coming to wage war. That's the scene of Jesus, right, to come and on our behalf and to restore all things and judge the nations. That's the Jesus in Revelation 19. Here, the Lord is just with a shout saying, come to me, right? So I, do these, I believe this is very strong to say that these are two independent events and this is that's tough for a post-tribulation rapture position. Um, but again, we don't have any timing here. This doesn't tell us about the timing. It just talks about uh, the harpazo, and it is it does relate to uh, the Lord's return. It did use the word with the trumpet. We'll come back to that in a bit. So then Paul has some follow-up. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is the verse that changed my position. This is the verse that... I no longer believed that the pre-tribulation rapture had, had much merit at all. Um, so I'm going to read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Again, we are looking for clues as to the timing of the harpazo, the rapture event itself. And we get some here. Okay, verse 1, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our what? Our gathering together to him. We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for which day? That day, coming of the Lord Jesus and our gathering to him, that day will not come unless two things happen. The falling away comes first, and the man of sin, the Antichrist, is revealed the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This is the abomination of desolation. This is that um, moment of time, the catalytic event that kickstarts the great tribulation, the second three and a half years of the tribulation period. This is the full revelation of 
uh, Satan through a man that we ha- now call the Antichrist. Okay, it's this demonic incarnation. It's the, the prophecy fulfilled from Genesis 3. The seed of Satan will be revealed in that moment at the abomination of desolation. So we know that our gathering to him can't come until that happens, and that happening is not happening until, it's a lot of happenings, uh, halfway through the tribulation period. Are you with me? Okay. And the great falling away also has to happen. Think about it for a second. We, and we're going to study more, but the great falling away is the great deception. Who's the great deceiver? Satan. Satan's going to be cast out of heaven, Revelation chapter 12. He's going to be up fighting. He's going to lose. He's going to be cast down to the earth. That demonic incarnation takes place. He indwells the Antichrist for a short time. He's given power for three and a half years. The Bible is very clear. Okay, the Bible doesn't say he's given power for seven years. It says that he prevails for three and a half years. So we know that we cannot be raptured. Paul's telling us very clearly. He's reminding the Thessalonians, hey, I already told you about this. But let me tell you again, this thing cannot happen until the falling away happens and the Antichrist is revealed. And he goes on, uh, verse 5, Do you not remember that when I was with you, I was telling you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then the lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. This is part of that deception, part of that falling away and with all unrighteousness deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved and for this reason God will what send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie so this is very strong evidence that um, again in my opinion it eliminates it's one of the very strong verses that eliminates a pre-tribulation rapture Um, and we're looking at a halfway mark Best bet. Um, so the question then is, well, when, if we're spared from God's wrath and it hasn't happened yet until at least the halfway mark, when does the wrath happen? Because Paul's clear we're spared from God's wrath. So the question is, well, when does it happen? I'm in full agreement with the pre-tribbers. We're spared from God's wrath. But when does it start? Go with me to Revelation chapter 6. It's important to work through the text, too. I just want to pause for a moment. You know, it's easy to just say, hey, God's wrath, we're, we're, you know, we're going to avoid it. It happens at day one. All good. And then the congregation's like, oh, sounds great. And then they, most people don't go back and actually, they're not like a Berean, where they go and study the scriptures daily and consider them. And that's what, just to pause, most of the Western pop culture Christianity here in the States believes, because it's being said from the pulpit, don't worry about it. Don't worry about the seven years. We're going to be out of here. I mean, think about the implications of that. Think about believers that are being taught this. And here, let's just say the abomination for desolation, for example. You know, they see this event. They say, well, that can't be the Antichrist because we're supposed to be out of here. And, they, you know, there's just there's so much deception that could take place. So, um, again, it's 
you got to work through these things. It's not necessarily the easy way, but um, God does reveal himself. We just have to um, move ourselves into the scripture. So in Revelation chapter 6, we're introduced to the seals. And uh, looking very much to Corey's uh, teaching on um, Revelation. But so the first six, uh, the first, we have the, the seals, the trumpets, and the bull judgments in the book of Revelation. And the first seven seals, the first six seals, line up very well with Jesus' Olivet Discourse. Okay, Matthew 24. We're going to look at that in a moment. But it's best understood that the tribulation period gets started at the first seal. Um, there's this, this force of peace that, that comes upon the land. You know, it, it may be line up with Daniel 9.27 when there's a covenant confirmed with the nation of Israel. So we see the first seal as this, this sort of uh, force of peace. Second seal, we have war. Third seal, we have uh, famine. Fourth seal, there's death. Fifth seal, we see that there's, there's people that have been martyred as a testimony of their witness to, of Jesus. And then we get to the sixth seal. But you may say, well, gosh, war and famine, that's God's wrath. That's not God's wrath. And it doesn't, it doesn't actually say that. We have wars all the time. Famines are nothing new. We've experienced famine. Um, death, that's nothing new. Martyrdom, that was part of the program for the early church. That's not God's wrath. These things are not God's wrath. Okay? And then we get to the sixth seal. And you'll see where I'm going with this. So verse 12, I looked. When he, Jesus, opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth, as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from what? The wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand. So we see we are introduced to the wrath and it comes after these cosmic disturbances after the issues with the moon and the stars and the sun, okay? So first time we're, we're sort of introduced to, to the wrath, which we are to be spared from. I'm gonna jump over to Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is Jesus' famous Olivet Discourse. It's his most lengthy sermon, I think, in general, but certainly on the end times. So Jesus' disciples had come to him and said, Lord, Lord, what are the signs of the end of the age and your coming? And then he just, boom, he hits them with it. And he, kind of, he goes through all these things. And they parallel what we just looked at in Revelation 6. We see in verse 6, wars. Verse 7, famine. Um, we see in verse 9, uh, death. It's like the fourth seal. There's more. There's, there's false prophets, the abomination of desolation. Um, and then we come to verse 29. And what does Jesus say? So he goes through these parallel with what we just read in the seals. And Jesus says in verse 29, immediately after, immediately after the tribulation of which days? Those days leading up. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. We just read that 
in John's testimony in Revelation, these cosmic disturbances. So after the tribulation, after those things happen, verse 30, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with the great sound of a what? A trumpet. We see the trumpet again. We saw Paul talking about the trumpet in 1 Thessalonians 4. And they will do what? They will gather together the elect from the four winds from the end of heaven to the other. So again, we see Jesus' testimony, this gathering taking place after those cosmic disturbances, which we just read about in the sixth seal in Revelation, those cosmic disturbances where they were, uh, John said, you know, the, the wrath was coming. All right? And so Jesus says, after those disturbances, the elect were gathered. Something interesting happens in Revelation chapter 7. So we see in Revelation 6, uh, the wrath has come. The, you know, the wars, the famine, all these things have taken place. And the wrath was about to come. And then in Revelation 7, we have this brief interlude before the seventh seal is opened. And something very interesting. Look at Revelation 7, verse 9. So, again, we know that these cosmic disturbances have happened. And in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus had gathered the elect after that. In Revelation 7, 9, after, the, after these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with what? With white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We have a, multiple, a multitude of people that are in heaven in white robes. This potentially, potentially could represent the raptured church, right? It said after these things that we just read about, Jesus said the elect were gathered, and now we have people in heaven. And then you go down to verse 13 and 14. Verse 13, then one of the elders answered, saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And what did he say? And I said to him, sir, you know, so he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. In the fifth seal, the martyrs were given robes. They were handed and they're, they're crying out, Lord, Lord, how long before you take vengeance on those that have, you know, we, that have killed us? And they're told, just wait a little while longer. Wait. That's the fifth seal. Then we get the sixth seal, the disturbances. Then the wrath is about to come. Matthew 24, we see the, the elector gathered. And then here we see a bunch of people in heaven. And we see people that actually have robes now. They're not holding them. So I believe this, if you, you know, I am considering this based on the fact, not the fact, the position that the seals, the trumpets, and the bull judgments in the book of Revelation are chronological, meaning they're consecutive based on language like before or after this, okay? That's, it lines up very well to suggest that potentially, this is one position, I'm trying to just be honest with the scripture here, that yes, we, are, we, are, we avoid wrath. And what is the wrath? Well, the, the pre-wrath position states it's the trumpet and the bull judgments in the book of Revelation. Jesus does not mention the trumpet and the bull judgments 
in Matthew 24, okay? So I know we're getting in the weeds here, um, but it's a, it's a pretty strong position to suggest that pre-wrath we are raptured sometime after the abomination desolation, that midpoint, but before the trumpet judgments are unleashed, all right? I don't have the answer. I'm just trying to be honest with the scriptures here. And I will say this, there's another very strong position, and I believe Corey will teach this uh, when, we, when we go through Revelation, that the seals, the trumpets, and the bull judgments are not chronological or consecutive. They're parenthetical, okay, which basically means that they're, they overlap. They're not consecutive, but they're sort of happy. They're all telling the same story in the same time frame, kind of like in Daniel. We went through Daniel 2, 7, 8, 9, 10 through 12, different chapters telling the same story, but with more detail, right? And the reason why this position has strength is because the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, and the seventh bull, at the end of those, they all see the same thing. There's thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. The seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, and the seventh bull. So it is possible that the seals, the trumpets, and the bulls are not consecutive, but they are um, parenthetical, that they're all happening at the same time because they end with the same event. And I'm going to let Pastor Corey take that jam. Um, I think he has a very strong, we're blessed to have your commitment to the word and very much looking forward to you going through that. Um, So, and he's got some, you know, there's, uh, this is not just our position or his position, but uh, some relation to the feasts, you know, the feasts that were put forth in Leviticus. They weren't just in remembrance of of the Lord and what he had done for, for his people, but it says they were for Moedim, for the appointed times, um, which means that the feasts are prophetic. And something very interesting, this is where I was going to come back to the trumpet thing. Um, Jesus fulfilled his first coming on actual Jewish feast days. He was crucified on Passover. He was buried on unleavened bread. He was raised on first fruits, And he sent the Holy Spirit on the Feast of Weeks, which we call Pentecost. He fulfilled his first coming on actual feast days. So it's possible that his second coming would be fulfilled on the fall feast days, starting with what? The Feast of Trumpets. It's it's fascinating to think about. And the trumpets are mentioned three times in the New Testament as it relates to our puzzle. So again, I'm going to let him take that. If I'm honest with the text, I think we need to really be uh, um, careful in considering that if if you uh, formally, or you still do adhere to that pre-tribulation um, rapture position, I would encourage you to study, study the text. I think there's really big implications um, to that. But, uh, you know, when I think about all of this, and I think it, it's really important to, if we are to endure, if we are called, if this is the generation of the Lord's return or a different set of people in the future, um, what does it mean to endure? You know, so five years ago, I started getting into these Spartan races I don't know if anybody is familiar with that. It's basically obstacle course racing. And for some weird reason, I like to just train hard and then go beat myself up and, and go test myself against these really extreme uh, conditions. 
And um, it started out as sort of a hobby. You know, I did these opens where everybody could go, no competition. You just go out and try and do it and survive, basically. And then I was like, you know, I'm, I'm innocently competitive. If, you know, I love to play board games. You know, it's, you know, it's all good if we ever play games together. I'm very gracious, but I like to win. Um, so I had this competitive nature, and these Spartan races took on a new animal and form for me. You know, I'm, work, I'm tr going to train at 5 a.m. some days and doing all this stuff. And I get into a, my competitive age group. I said, I'm going to go see how I do against the guys my age. And I'll never forget, a couple years ago, I'm in this race, and I'm going. And remember, it's all about me, right? I'm just, like, trying to see how good I can do. I'm trying to win. And I'm, and I'm going around, I'm probably, like, mile four. These things are, like, some of them 13 miles with 40 obstacles. It's crazy. And I'm at mile four, and I come across this guy in a wheelchair. And he's got three guys with him. And they're literally helping him through this course, and all of a sudden, I became emotional in the middle of the race. I'm like, how incredible is this that they're doing this, that these other three guys are helping this man endure and to finish the race strong? And that is what endurance is. If we are called to endure, if we are in the generation of the Lord's return, that's what enduring is. It's not you know, going and building a bunker and having 10 guns and getting, just trying to survive. You know, It's about being prepared. It's about understanding what God's word says so that you can point people to the word and say, hey, don't worry. Paul tells us, comfort one another, right? That's it. That's what the enduring part is. You want to be prepared. From the start, I said, I hope that we grow in confidence and clarity and conviction as followers of Jesus. And that's what it's about. It's preparing to endure to help others as it relates to eschatology, as it relates to the seven years. Absolutely. Being in a position to know what's happening, just like Daniel knew what was going on. He understood the 70-year prophecy. We need to be aware of what God is doing prophetically in our midst today. We need to be committed to what his word is saying. And, you know, I'm going to take off my eschatology hat for a minute, preparing to endure. That, as we endure as Christians, that's what it's all about. It's about coming alongside people. It's about knowing how to empathize, having a humble heart. Enduring, it's about not compromising on what the word says because the world's going to tell you what's popular. And even a lot of Christian churches are going to tell you, it's all good, don't worry, you know, holiness and right, you know, the Lord's law, it's, it's okay. You know, just come show up and get a good, it's all grace, baby. Listen, we need to not compromise on, on what, you know, the word says. And that's part of the enduring, being steadfast in the truth, especially during these days. It's, it's really, really important. And that's what the enduring part is all about. Amen? Yeah. Well, it's been a, an honor to be able to walk through this um, very meaty subject over the last uh, five weeks. And I'm looking forward to, um, you know, continuing on in, in Revelation and, and uh, seeing what the Lord's going to, going to teach us, but um, we're, to, we're to comfort one another. We're not to be in fear. You know, my, my whole goal initially was, Lord, and as I prayed, just, God, bring clarity and bring conviction to us. Have the peace of Holy Spirit upon us as we work through these things. So let me pray and we'll worship again together. Father, I thank you so much just for your word. Thank you that we can 
Um, study things that are important, like your grace. I didn't mean to be dismissive of that, Father. Your grace is, that's it. Lord, you have gifted us um, faith that we might believe, that we might have eyes to believe, to come into relationship with you, Father. We've been reconciled to you, God, through the blood of Jesus. What a gift. Thank you for your grace. We do not take that lightly. Um, and Father, as we've worked through these things, I pray that uh, the people here and that, uh, that listen one day to these sermons would, would just grow in confidence, clarity, and in their convictions as believers. Um, Holy Spirit, continue to, to teach us and um, just love you so much, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for tuning in to Renewing Hope Church. May God's love for you renew your hope today, and may his face shine upon you and give you peace. If you need prayer or would like to reach out to us, you can do so at our website, renewinghope.church. Until next time, 